0: Welcome to CID speaker series podcast. This week, Yuxiang Law, CID student ambassador, will be interviewing Parak Kana, geostrategist, best-selling author, and senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore. Parak just finished a presentation on his book, Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. In this book, he guides us through the emerging global network civilization in which megacities compete over connectivity more than borders. He explains how 21st century conflict is a tug of war over pipelines and internet cables, advanced technologies, and market access. All right, so thank you, Dr. Khanna, for coming to the CID and for the great talk. Now we want to learn a bit more about your research for a larger audience. So to begin with, how did you get interested in studying the issue of global connectivity?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, for me, because connectivity is thought of as something that is so wireless and mm-hmm. ethereal, almost psychological, we don't appreciate its physical foundations. And what I wanted to do as someone who loves maps, right. who's thinking about new dynamics in geopolitics, and then realizing the value in the role of connectivity, I wanted to start to quantify it and to visualize it both. And mm-hmm. In order to do that, you need to start making maps and you need to start, conceptually breaking down what is this connectivity and to me it boils down to infrastructure and infrastructure there's nothing ethereal about that infrastructure is concrete stuff it's the cities and the buildings it's the highways and the railways and the bridges and the tunnels and the airports and the oil and gas pipelines and the electricity grids and the internet cables connectivity it turns out is not a fluffy you know wireless thing at all it's deeply deeply physical and geopolitics is very much about the relationship between power and space. Mm -hmm. And infrastructure, as it happens, is how power is projected across space. So I realize that there is something very, very geopolitical about infrastructure. And of course, in fact, it always has been. It's just about how we analyze it. You can read about how, you know, the Romans expanded their empire and, you know, Great Britain colonized India. You don't often hear about, well, incrementally, they were paving these roads, they were building these railways, and they were using these infrastructural technologies to advance conquest. And so we need to elevate that story from the past because it's true and historians have written about it and need to apply it to the present and the future. So that's what got me into all of this. I
0: see. And did any of your personal travel experiences motivate your research?
1: Of course. I mean, travel not only motivates my research, it's part of the justification for why I research is to travel and so much of my uh, information comes from what I see and hear and collect through traveling. I think whatever I've written, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad, but it would be a lot worse if it weren't for the experience of traveling. And traveling helps you invalidate so many mm-hmm. of the assumptions that you get only from reading about something right. and create new facts and and, uh, and in a way new discoveries and new insights that you would never have if you didn't travel. I see. So in one of your previous talks,
0: you mentioned that connectivity is not only charity, but also opportunities. So on behalf of the CID, I want to ask a few questions about development. So do you think global connectivity benefits all regions equally? As global cities arise, will small localities find it difficult to develop its own less globalized local economy?
1: Right. That's a great question. So. Uh, Not all connectivity is spread equally, therefore its benefits are obviously not spread equally at all. Mm And what is clearly happening in the world is that as people urbanize, more connected cities are getting richer faster, and that is actually exacerbating inequality. So if you pause for a minute, I mean, we think of urbanization as a good thing Mm -hmm. because people move to cities, especially women, they get educated, they have access to jobs, to health care, fertility rates decline, employment rises, wages grow. what's not to love about urbanization and people moving to cities. However, that actually exacerbates the domestic wage gap and income inequality because the gap between the haves and the Mm have-nots within a country grows. And that leads you to something like Occupy Wall Street. If you combine urbanization and financial capitalism, you get elevated inequality and Mm -hmm. political backlash. So look at the world today, at least the Western world. Clearly, you can see those forces at play. Now, I still think urbanization is a positive force. I still think globalization is a positive force. I think the two in combination are enriching the world as a whole. The task of governance and the responsibility of government is to take that wealth that's generated through urbanization and financial globalization Mm -hmm. and to use it to compensate and to adequately elevate those neglected parts of countries for their own benefit. Because if a country like Indonesia or the Philippines that has more than 100, more than 200 million people, but only one city driving everything, that means that that country isn't really going to reach its potential. So the government should be investing in the second-tier cities, the third-tier cities, the rural areas, their infrastructure, their skills, their mobility, and that way the economy will grow even more on a more broad-based, in a more broad-based way. Coming back to the issue about those like
0: large cities and the, the mega clusters, because they also have their internal problems like congestion yes. and also internal inequality. So what kind of urban innovation do you think is right. required for the city government to also deal with those issues? Right.
1: And I often talk about inequality as sort of at three levels. Mm-hmm. You know, the global level, the national level, and then the intra city level, right? right? Because you see that especially mega cities really have such high inequality themselves. You have yes. the urbane, cosmopolitan, central business districts, and then you have vast slums, you know, disconnected spaces. So, again, the city government and the federal government and local actors and investors and businesses have a responsibility to make sure that the city is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And that's also something where there has been a lot of neglect. And I think that's unfortunate because just as, like, a country does not reach its full potential uh, without... Um, you know, investments in uh, in broad-based growth. The same is true of cities.
0: I see. So we've been talking about national governments and also local governments. So what role do you think could multilateral organizations play in order to ensure the peace and rights of all people in the world? With the increasing global connectivity, is global governance also justified?
1: Well, I'm afraid that global institutions, you know, don't have the resources that they would need to play a very significant redistributive role. Right. They play a supportive role in Mm -hmm. national initiatives, which is, of course, what they're actually meant to do, right? The purpose of multilateral organizations, such as the United Nations, or the relevant ones to this conversation, like the World Bank, or the UN Development Program, is actually meant to support local national efforts with some amount of resources. Now, in some cases the resources that the multilaterals bring to the development issues are larger than what the government itself has mm-hmm. in other cases it's just a drop in the bucket so i don't think that we can envision a system where there is true global governance and coordination around issues like development and inequality now there's no reason to doubt what i'm saying because we have 70 years of experience in the fact that it's it doesn't work right so i mean you know ultimately domestic policies national level governance is going to be the decisive factor at the end of the day. I do think multilaterals can be very important. I think that regional organizations are part of that picture and even more important. And I believe very strongly in the principle of subsidiarity, the idea that we should be transferring authorities and resources to as local a level as possible to stimulate, uh, sort of, you know, uh, to stimulate uh, solutions. And I would like to see a lot more of that happen. But I, fundamentally, am more of a bottom-up than a top-down kind of person.
0: I see. <laughs> yeah. So, like, apart from this traditional multilateral
1: organizations,
0: there's also this emerging <coughs> trend of local governments or cities yes. teaming up mm-hmm. to form their own network. Yes. So, can you give us some examples of how that's actually happening? In the sure. World?
1: In the term that I coined for that is diplomacy, right? Okay. The diplomacy among cities, diplomacy. And we see lots and lots of diplomacy in the world today. We see... Um, obviously the most famous example that everyone knows is the c40 climate initiative so mm-hmm. 40 mayors or that's a lot more than 40 today have um, you know realized that they need to share lessons and how you reduce carbon emissions mm-hmm. how you do green buildings how you do sustainable transportation they're learning from each other how to have more sustainable infrastructure and reduce each of their footprint and since those cities have the biggest carbon footprint in the world what they do on climate change matters as much or more than what happens in the intergovernmental summits around climate change. Again, bottom up winds up having a bigger impact on the issue than top down, because top down agreements such as the Paris framework are non binding fundamentally.
0: Yes, because I mean, the local governments might not have the true interest to invest or to team up if there's not for their own benefit. Yeah. Right, so last question. So how do you think recent events like Brexit could affect the prospect of global connectivity?
1: Well, actually Brexit, if you think of it as an example of devolution, Mm -hmm. is a strong force that propels connectivity. So first of all, the world is going through a massive devolutionary wave since World War II. At the end of World War II, a few empires controlled the world, and there were only 50 countries that were members of the United Nations. Today we have 200 countries, so devolution is by far the most powerful political force in the world. Devolution is much more powerful than democracy, and that's something that I explain at great length uh, in the book. So Brexit, in a way, is sort of devolving away from a regional organization organization but look at what britain has done now that it has is spinning out from england They're, the name of their strategy is global Britain
0: right how
1: can this tribal decision to split from Europe lead to a global Britain the reason is because Britain whether or not is a member of the EU is desperate for connectivity more desperate now than it would have been had it stayed in the EU so in other words with devolution you have to overcompensate to maintain the connectivity that you need. And Britain is a very good case because it's a highly trade-dependent economy. It's not a very big country. It's very connected. And if it loses its connections because of Brexit, its economy is going to massively suffer. So now they're realizing that, you know, we've done this Brexit thing. It's going to inhibit our connectivity, but we depend on that connectivity. So now we have to invest in being a global Britain and restoring that connectivity. So I'll make a bet with you that five years from now, Britain is more connected to the world in every possible way because right. they are so desperate to compensate for their mistake.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Khanna. These are very, very interesting remarks and very insightful. And again, we thank you for your time for coming to the CID. And we look
1: forward to seeing you again. My pleasure. It was so great to be here.
0: If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.